The warm air, the sounds of baseball, it's got you thinking about hitting the road. And no matter where your adventures take you, Subaru of Gwinnett has a vehicle to get you there safely and in style. Like the 2024 Subaru Outback, sporting standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and up to 32 miles per gallon. Or the 2024 Subaru Forester, the SUV with a spacious and comfortable interior for everyone you want to bring along. Start your shopping online at SubaruofGwinnett.com, then come see us for a test drive on Satellite Boulevard in Duluth. Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, Two Under, Taylor Made Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the Tee. Thank you so much for being here and a part of the show again tonight. I've got three really wonderful guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. But before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our new sponsor, the McLemore, which is a beautiful community resort and golf course, just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee on Lookout Mountain. And folks, you've got to see this place to believe it. Go online to themclemore.com, M-C-L-E-M-O-R-E themaclemore.com because everything up there is just beautiful. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend and one of our guests tonight, Kip Henley, sent on Twitter a few weeks back that outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. See why he says that by checking out the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. Tonight, folks, my first guest is going to be Michael Whalen. Michael is the original vice president of production and executive producer at the Golf Channel. He's responsible for just about everything that the channel became. He hired everyone that you saw back starting in 1995, including our good friend Keith Hirschland and a couple of production assistants that you might have heard of, and Scott Van Pelt and Kelly Tillman. We'll hear that whole story and so much more from Michael when he joins me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from former PGA Tour caddy Andy Leno. Andy, you know, is uh, a wonderful friend. He started uh, coming on the show about a year or so ago and has just been fantastic ever since. Want to get his thoughts on what's going on around the tour. We have, what, no fans? Guys are starting to test positive. So I want to talk about that. Plus, I want to get, you know, some tips from him around course management and the mental approach. Always fun when Andy's a part of the show. He'll join me in about 25 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from another tour caddy, like I said a minute ago, Kip Henley. And if you're not following Kip on Twitter, you really need to, at Kip Henley. You're missing out on a lot of funny stuff if you're not keeping up with what he's tweeting out every day. I want to get Kip's thoughts again on the impact COVID-19 is having on the players and the caddies. And like I say, we've seen a handful of uh, positive tests lately, so want to talk about that. want to talk about caddy etiquette. I want to talk about the trips that he's made to Augusta National over the years, going all the way back to his days in college, back in the days when you could still walk up to the ticket booth and buy practice round tickets for 12 to $15. So we'll talk about that and a whole lot more when Kip joins me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much 
for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. I want to start out tonight by saying hello to my friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and reminding you about their great golf shows. Mitch's podcast is called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can stream online at GolfTripX.com. It's also available on Audioboom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host Aaron Bunch are going to take you around the U.S. and Canada to take you to some of the great places that you can go stay and play, plus let you know about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. Go online to GolfTripX.com to stream their wonderful podcast. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time. You can stream it by going online to WLXG.com or download the WLXG app. Features our good friend Perry French in their very first segment, so you know a lot of great tips and information are coming your way right at the top of the show. And Matthew has great guests every week, and he's a fantastic person, so you're really going to enjoy the show. Again, it's called Backspin Golf. It's on ESPN WLXG Radio and WLXG.com and on their app as well. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and the TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls. Played by Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. You know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X. And now both TP5 and TP5X are visible. And now TP5 and TP5X are available in high visibility yellow. And you guys know how much I love the yellow golf ball. Have you made the switch? Check out TaylorMade.com for more information. All right. Now joining me here on Next on the Tee is Michael Whalen. Michael was one of the driving forces behind the Golf Channel when it got started back in 1995. He was the original VP of production and the executive producer. He hired all the people in front of and behind the cameras. Michael's career also had him at HBO, CBS, and NBC. He's a production genius that's been silent for way too long. His father spent time as a trainer for my hometown Pittsburgh Pirates in the early to mid-1960s, so Michael's had the opportunity to meet several of the Pirate legends, which I'm dying to talk with him about. And it's an honor to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be here, Chris. It's been a long time. You and I have been chatting for many, many months, almost a couple of, almost a year now. And uh, greetings from the Sunshine State. It's great to be here. <laughs> and uh, uh, the introduction was exciting. Great PGA uh, stars, LPGA stars and legends. So uh, probably the nicest thing that's been said to me in 22 years. <laughs> I find that hard to imagine. But I can't thank you enough for being here to share your story, Michael. But thank you for the kind um, introduction. It's been a long time. It's been uh, it's hard to believe that it's been twenty. Oh my gosh, twenty five years uh, since I sat in Orlando, Florida, on a dry race board and put together the Golf Channel. And, and I certainly want to get to all of those stories. I, I want to start out quickly, going back to uh, when you were a kid. Like I mentioned in your intro, and you and I have talked a little bit about this over social media, but. Your father was a trainer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I'm from Pittsburgh and, and, and grew up a huge Pirates fan, and I'm from actually Penn Hills. I know you lived in Monroeville, which is just down the street from Penn Hills for a yeah. while, and we were talking about Willie Stargell being my uh, baseball hero growing up, and you got to spend some time with Willie and a lot of those great Pirate legends. Talk about that. Well, in, in 1959, my father got the job. He knew Danny Murtaugh, uh, the Pirates train. Uh, the manager at the time, and Mr. Galbraith, who owned the Pirates and was good friends with both of them, and got the job as the trainer for the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1959. Uh, and then in 60, obviously, won the greatest World Series, the first World Series 
that ever ended with a walk-off home run with uh, Mazeroski lining uh, a Ralph Terry fastball over the Longines clock in left field. But um, every Saturday and every Sunday as a little kid, I was the bat boy. I would go to the games, and I would hang out with my dad and Roberto Clemente and Elroy Face and uh, Bill Burt and Bob Friend and and a rookie in 1962 by the name of Willie Stargell. And uh, it was just a lot of fun hanging out with the Pirates. My typical day was my dad and I would get there around 9 o'clock. The players would gradually come in. And Roberto would always take me out to right field when they were warming up. And he would throw underhand balls to me. I'd hit him into the right field bleachers and run around Roberto Clemente for about 30 minutes uh, until I warm out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It was a great time, you know. Uh, uh, back in those days, it was a, it was it was a different type of you know team. The players stayed with the uh, teams forever. Uh, Roberto and you know the Bob friend who you know and Vernon Law and uh, Bill Verdon and Bill Mazeroski and Smokey. I mean the list goes on and on. But uh, going to games back in Old Forbes Field was really just a real pleasure getting to know Stan Musial and Hank Aaron and some of the greatest players of all time. And uh, it was just exciting hanging out with my dad back then. Yeah, and talk about that, that last piece, right? Because not only did you get to play catch with Clemente all the time, but, you know, Willie Mays and Stan Musial, Hank Aaron. Talk about some of the other fantastic legends that you had an opportunity to uh, interact with. Well, my dad was really kind of an unusual character. He was probably one of the greatest raconteurs, maybe the most well-known athletic trainer ever to be in sports. Not only was he with the Pirates, but after he left the Pirates in 65-66, he went on to the New York Knicks where he won two world championships when they had Willis Reed and Walt Frazier, uh, Dave the Butcher and crew. But you know, my dad would just go next door to the clubhouse, which was right next door to the Pirates. And anytime the teams would come in, my dad just knew everybody. You know, back in those days, they hung out. They'd go out for a few drinks after the game. And whether it was Stan Musial or Willie Mays or uh, Hank Aaron back in those days or Eddie Matthews or Bob Gibson, um, you know, back in those days, the players came back and forth and they knew one another. And it was very, very common to see the other team, you know, hanging out in the clubhouse, playing cards with each other. And uh, it, I, I just got to know a lot of the greatest of all time. And they took a liking to me. And, uh, you know, it, I had baseball gloves from Hank Aaron back in those days and Stan Musial and and as I said, I got to play catch and, and whack a few balls into the right field uh, bleachers at Forbes Field. And, uh, you know, I really didn't realize the significance and magnitude uh, of what was going on. I was, you know, I was seven or eight or nine years old at the time. But looking back now, uh, my goodness gracious, they're, they're the greatest of all times. And, you know, I was their adopted son every Saturday and Sunday when the visiting team came in. So I'm hoping for you, Michael, that you have one of the great sports memorabilia collections of all time. <laughs> yeah. Do you? I have nothing. I have nothing, Chris. I gave oh, it all away. I, I flushed it down the toilet. My, now, oh. my sister, on the other hand, is the hoarder. She's got everything. She's got everything from Willis Reed's game jersey 
to the oh. first six-finger baseball glove that Bob Bailey, the third baseman of the Pittsburgh Pirates, tried out to an old catcher's mitt of Smokey Burgess to a bat of, Jer- of Jerry Lynch. I think when he set the record for most hits as a pinch hitter uh, in 63 or 64. But for me, no, nah, I blew it. I've got, I don't have much. Oh. Oh, I'm so sorry but, to but, hear that. But, but, but I do have the 1960 World Series ring. Oh, is that right? I do. I wear it every single day. My father, when he passed away uh, uh, about 15 years ago, gave me the uh, the Forbes Field 1960 World Championship ring. Wow. Got to send me a picture so of that. My, I got that. My sister and brother got the two New York Knicks championship rings. That's awesome. Um, Michael, let's, let's talk a little golf and, um, I, I kind of want to get your, uh, beginnings in the, in the production world and going back to your days when you first were getting into the business as a production assistant with CBS, talk about how you started and got down that path. Well, I'll, I'll make it a real quick story at CBS. I, I never had any intention of going to television. I, I went to St. Mary's college on a baseball scholarship. And, and I wanted to be a doctor. I was a biology liberal arts major, and I thought that, that being a doctor, kind of following in my father's footsteps, was something I wanted to be. And uh, I was very, very blessed that I had the ability to go out to NYU Medical School uh, back in 1981. And my goal was to be an orthopedic surgeon and uh, never really wanted to do it, but I didn't know anything else. And as I said, following in my father's footsteps was something that I thought was important. Um, at the time, I happened to be dating a woman who was an actress of a soap opera called All My Children. And one night she took me out to an after uh, rap party. And at that party, I happened to meet at the time, the president of CBS Sports, a guy by the name of Terry O'Neill, who happened to know my father very, very well, because my dad was with the Knicks at that time. And we just really hit it off. And he just said, look, if you ever decide one day not to be a doctor, there's always a job at CBS for me. And uh, when I went home that night, I really began to think that, you know what, I don't want to be a doctor. I love to write. I love sports. Uh, I love the idea of, of, of television production. What I saw at that soap opera was something that reminded me of a sporting event the way the producers and the directors worked together. And it was, it was just like a symphony. And so I went home, uh, I was living with my father at the time and about a week later, um, dropped out of NYU med school and became a production assistant for CBS sports. My father disowned me for about a year, thought I had lost my mind. And I worked at CBS for about a year and a half. Uh, they made some cuts. I got let go got picked up by HBO in 1981 uh, for a seven-week show with Marvin Hagler Championship Pike and stayed there for 15 years. Yeah, so let's let's expound on that a little bit because I heard that, you know, one of your big, uh, big breaks came by the way of, you know, one of our friends over on the football side on our uh, show Thursday Night Tailgate, uh, former head of HBO Sports, Ross Greenberg. And uh, you kind of latch on with Ross, and the next thing you know, like you say, you you, t- you turn a, a few weeks with their boxing into a career practically. Talk about, you know, your time there, you know, the golden years of boxing, you know, back in the, 
in the 80s and the 90s with the Haglers and the Sugar Ray Leonard's and, and all of those guys? What was that like? Well, when I, when I went over to HBO in 81 as a freelance production assistant at the time, Ross was the senior producer for HBO. He had yet to be promoted to the president. And I, I worked directly with Ross, and it was, it's through Ross Greenberg that I learned everything there is about television. I learned to be a better writer, a better producer. Ross probably is one of the greatest storytellers in the history of sports television. And I was just very, very blessed that for whatever reason, Ross and I got along like peanut butter and jelly, and uh, he really took me under his wings beat me up badly every single day. Um, it took me a long time to realize that that was just tough love. Um, but, you know, thanks to Ross, uh, he developed me into one of the greatest writers and producers that uh, HBO had. And while I was there, there was some uh, leadership changes, and Ross went from senior producer to the president of HBO Sports, and I was lucky enough to be one of two top producers, along with Rick Bernstein, and we were the three amigos that produced all of the major fights. And we're talking about Hagler and Hearns, and we're talking about Mike Tyson and Larry Holmes and um, Julio Cesar Chavez and Meldrick Taylors. And you know, if it was if it was a big fight, it was on HBO in the '80s, and they were the place to go. And you know, some of the great fights that we did, obviously, were, were Hagler-Hearns. And then the biggest fight was when Buster Douglas knocked out uh, Mike Tyson in, in uh, Tokyo, which is one of the biggest fights ever. And um, I was uh, very, very blessed to learn from the best. And you were there for that, uh, that Tyson-Buster uh, Douglas fight. And I've seen pictures and things of that nature. What was it like before and after that fight? Well, you know, it, it's kind of funny because we, we, when we stayed at the hotel, my room happened to be directly across from Mike Tyson's room. And I, and I got to know Mike Tyson very well through the years. It was myself and Rick Bernstein who were in charge of doing all the pre-fight stories on Mike Tyson. So just before the fight, when you would see a little behind-the-scenes story on, on Tyson, it was, it was usually Rick or I or sometimes we did it together, would do all the stories, and I became good friends with with Mike through the years. But, you know, being right across from him, I knew that there was something going on because Mike was doing a tremendous amount of partying and entertaining with the ladies that entire week, and it didn't seem like Mike was very focused on a, I don't know if he was a 40-to-1 or 60-to-1 underdog, Buster Douglas at the time, but it just didn't seem like that Mr. Tyson was in his fighting mood. So that particular night, when we or actually it was a daytime, it was a 12 in the afternoon fight. Um, you know, the production truck in the production control room is always a well-organized, chaotic place. Um, you know, while there's excitement going on in the ring, everybody has a professional job to do, and it's uh, it's it's like a beautiful orchestra, but for this fight, it was a little bit different. I probably never in the history of any shows that I have ever done seen the entire production personnel get as wrapped up as fans and excited 
when Tyson got knocked down uh, earlier and almost knocked out, and then it came back where Tyson knocks uh, Buster Douglas down, and then in that final scene where Buster knocks him down and that beautiful handheld shot of Mike Tyson on the canvas trying to find his mouthpiece and putting in putting in it awkwardly, the, the production trucks were shaking uh, like a an earthquake in California, and uh, it took us a while to get our composure to actually do the job that we were. So, but that was probably the most exciting night of sports that I've ever been involved in. Wow, what a great story! So, Michael, how do you how do you go from there? to getting the opportunity to start up this thing called the Golf Channel? Well, it's, you know, you, it's always being in the right place at the right time. As I said, when Ross became the president of HBO Sports, there were two guys who were primarily responsible for all of the shows uh, at HBO, and that was Rick Bernstein and myself. And through the years, uh, I had become very, very good friends with one of our programming executives, a gentleman by the name of Bob Greenway, um, who negotiated a lot of deals with a management group called IMG, International Management Group, that, that represented Arnold Palmer. And we just did a lot of shows where they got to work side by side with me and saw exactly what type of a producer I was. So when the Golf Channel came around in 94, one of the first people that the Golf Channel hired was Bob Greenway to head up the corporate side of production. Bob was going to do all the negotiating of all the deals, whether it was European tour events, uh, footage uh, rights, and the first person that he came to to put together the entire network, how it looked, who was going to be in front and behind the cameras, was me. And he offered me the job on a cold New York day um, when it was about 30 degrees outside snowing. And the thought of me putting my uh, thumbprint uh, and ideas on a television network was something that I thought I would never get another shot at, nor would most people in the industry. And, uh, and that's kind of how it happened. Were you ner nervous at all? You know, I, was, I wasn't. I was. I was. You know, I was comfortable at HBO. You know, you when you work at a place and you know the people and you know the routine, you become very, very comfortable. And when you step out of your comfort zone, there's a lot of fear. Of course there was. I mean, there was 70 or $80 million that Joe Gibbs from Alabama had gotten together to put together this concept of a 24-hour golf channel, which if you took a poll, most people thought, had no chance in hell of maybe being successful. Um, and the entire responsibility of, you know, putting on a 24-hour channel that everybody was going to buy into uh, was, was extremely stressful. And you got to remember, back in 1994, there was two parallel networks that were being launched. One was Fox News that was being headed by Rupert Murdoch, and Roger Ailes, they had about 90, maybe a billion dollars to play with. And then there was the Golf Channel that was going to bring me to Orlando in July, and they were going to give me four and a half months and as much uh, chewing gum and spit as I possibly needed <laughs> to put together a 24-hour Golf Channel. 
So the pressure of putting on that network in a short amount of time when there had been not one person hired when I came to Orlando, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I didn't tell very many people, but, uh, but, but yeah, it was very, very fearful. It was, uh, you know, I, I knew my production abilities, but whether or not I could pull off all the moving pieces in time and get people from all over the world, about a hundred of them to get to Orlando quickly and put together these shows, uh, was pretty fearful. Now, luckily for me, I had all the shows created, designed, laid out. Uh, I had the roadmap pretty much done. So all I needed to do at some point was to get on the phone and start to call as many people as I possibly knew in the industry. And one of the biggest selling points was it was going to be in Orlando, Florida. And when you're calling people in, uh, in snow and bad weather in Connecticut and New Jersey and New York, and you're telling them that you're going to be barbecuing in January, playing golf, and being a part of this golf network, uh, it was appealing to a lot of people. So I had that ace in my pocket, and uh, fortunately, I was able to pull it off. And in January of 95, uh, we pulled the switch, and lo and behold, um, it hasn't shut down since. So, yeah, so let's talk about that. A couple of things, right? As you talked about the, the ace you had in your pocket, well, that, that, that ace isn't going to be there much longer because it's moving to Stamford, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. That, what, that's, that, that, that's get your sad. thoughts on you know, that. It's, a, it, it's you, know, you, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's, you had mentioned, you know, was it fearful? Was it exciting? You know, it's, it's, it's very rare that anybody, any artist ever gets to create uh, an entire art gallery, television show, let alone a network from scratch and really make it what they want it to be. And from HBO, one of the things that we did there so well is we were just wonderful, impassioned storytellers, whether it was boxing, Wimbledon, inside the NFL. It didn't matter. What Ross told us is we tell beautiful stories and move people that watch it. And that's what the Golf Channel was going to be. It was going to be, in my mind, an intimate, interactive place where people at home who love the game as much as I did were going to be able to connect with it, participate in it. And that was going to be the biggest thing. I remember being a little tiny kid growing up in a dysfunctional home, and I would go to bed at night listening to the radio, and what I would love to do is listen to Larry King. And I was a little tiny kid listening to Larry King, and I used to remember callers calling in and getting an opportunity to speak to Larry, and when they got through, you could just hear it in their voice, the excitement, the thrill, the passion, the honor it was to be able to talk to Larry. And as weeks turned into months, turned into years, the same people would call back and there'd be this relationship that Larry would have from Joe from Iowa and Betsy from Temecula, California. And that's what I wanted the Golf Channel to be. So when I was putting together the concept of the shows and flying from New York to Wimbledon, the first shows that I came up with were, one, Golf Talk Live. Every single week, the greatest in the world, whether it was Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Meg Mallon, Pete Dye, uh, Jim Flick, uh, whomever it was, 
was going to come on the set. I was going to have a host interview them, and people from around the country were going to get a chance, and they were going to be able to do uh, speak to Arnold Palmer. And that was going to be something these people were going to be remember the rest of their lives. And it was going to be Golf Academy Live where we are going to have the greatest instructors in the world on and guys who you couldn't even pay if you wanted to because they charged you $2,000 an hour. But for 90 minutes, you're going to be able to watch these people and call in and get instructions. And there was going to be Golf Channel Workshop where people who like to tinkle with their clubs would be able to figure out. So it went on and on and on that the intimate interaction part of the Golf Channel was going to be the predominant thing that drove the channel. Now, obviously, there was going to be some tournaments. There was going to be the, you know, the Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. There was going to be our version of ESPN Sports Center. But, you know, for me, it was going to be the intimacy. And lo and behold, every piece of the puzzle that I had put together all fell in place. I was very blessed. I got the right people in. And um, it, it, it was just a really fabulous launch. And as I said, we had one opportunity that when the Golf Channel started, it was either going to be a success or it was going to fold like a cheap deck chair. And the advertisers and the distributors and the people that gave Joe $80 million were either going to buy into it or they were going to get rid of it right away. And luckily, it looked beautiful. People believed in it. Money started to come in. Everybody was paid every single week. And it turned out to be what it is today until the changes have now happened. Michael, just one more before I let you go. And and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up one of the great producers of all time. And that's our good friend, Keith Hirschland. And you brought Keith in. You had a couple of other um, uh, interns in there, a couple of production assistants that have gone on to become uh, tremendously successful, and Scott Van Pelt and Kelly Tillman. Talk about those three. Well, it, you know, obviously one of the, you know, I wanted great producers who were great storytellers, and I did my homework and asked around the industry about who was the best person out there to be able to produce live golf. And the name Keith Hirschland popped up a few times. And so Keith at the time was working for ESPN. I got in touch with him uh, after a few phone calls. And I said to Keith, I want you down here in Orlando, Florida. I'd love for you to, to possibly do our live golf. I want to meet you. And Keith flew down. We got to play about nine or 12 holes of golf. I loved Keith. I loved his passion. We felt the same way at takeoff. I said, oh, and by the way, you've got about um, 24 hours to get back to me with a yes or a no. Otherwise, I'm moving on. So I, don't, I think wow. I probably scared Keith. But uh, he went back home at the time, talked to his family, took the job, came back down. And I'll tell you what, without Keith uh, and many other top quality producers, um, the golf channel would never have made it. And, you know, the great thing about being a great leader is trusting the people around you and having good people around you. You know, you're only as good as the people. And if you have two people that think alike, you don't need one of them. And that's what I loved about Keith. You know, Keith could manage, he could produce, uh, he, he could, he 
he was just a terrific guy to work with. And I was, I've been very, very blessed. And I've been very, very lucky that we've stayed in touch for tw- almost 25 years now. But it's, but it's, it, you know, it's sad to see the golf channel leave, but you know, I knew this was going to happen uh, back in 2013 when NBC, you know, bought the property in Connecticut and they had the studios and Arnold wasn't around any longer. You, you just can't be burning money in Orlando, Florida, when you can take everything and put it in Connecticut. So it's a shame they're moving on. The the shows are going to be different, but it doesn't surprise me one bit. Michael, before I let you go, let our listeners know. I mean, you're fascinating. Your life has been, you know, a, 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 an up and down sort of thing, and we only got into a little bit of it tonight. So first of all, I'd love to get you back on the show. Let our listeners know Any, how they can follow anytime. you. Thank you. You can always follow me on Mike J. Whalen. I don't talk. I don't talk as much sports as I do politics. So I don't know if you want to follow me or not. But uh, <laughs> you know, anytime you, anytime you, you're you're shorthanded for a guy to come back on and talk about the Golf Channel and how we really did it and go into the details of of uh, the X's and O's of the Golf Channel. You've got me anytime you need me. Well, I appreciate that very much, Michael. I can't thank you enough for being here and a part of the show tonight. We'll definitely do it again real soon. In between now and then, my friend, stay safe, and I look forward to catching up with you. And and same with you. Stay healthy and say hi to everybody, and, uh, and tell Kip I said hello when you get him on. I will do it. Take care, Michael. All the best in your family. We'll All right, Chris. Soon. It's always a pleasure, my friend, and keep doing the great work. I appreciate you, Michael. Take care. That's a great Michael Whalen. Mike J. Whalen is how you can follow him on Twitter. Folks, I mean, that's fantastic stuff. I mean, you think about, you know, you know, I'm obviously jealous as I could possibly be being, you know, the bad boy and the guy that got to go out there and play catch with Roberto Clemente and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Stan Musial and, and uh, get to know uh, my childhood baseball hero, Willie Stargell. So that is, you know, in and of itself. But then all of the wonderful things Michael has had the opportunity to do. Ross Greenberg is a wonderful friend on the football side, and I know what a genius he is. And uh, to know that he and Michael were working hand-in-hand telling those great stories in HBO Sports is, is phenomenal. And then, you know, getting the idea to you know start the Golf Channel from nothing, from nothing. And Michael scratched out, as he said, all of the shows, hired all of the people, and got it to where uh, it is today, really. If it wasn't for that foundation, they'd probably never go anywhere. So Michael's fantastic. I'd look forward to catching up with him again soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Andy Lane, I want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world, and that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at benhogangolf.com. Visit them there and learn about their great products and their great prices. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back with me is Andy Leno. Andy was a caddy for 25 years on the PGA and LPGA Tours. 
He's caddied for Kenny Perry for about a decade. He's also caddied for Tom Watson, Peter Jacobson, Nick Faldo, Tez Rivy, Michelle Wee, our good friends Dave Stockton and Richard Zirkel. He played his high school golf at Deering High in Portland, Maine, his college golf at Western Kentucky University. He's caddied in uh, over 40 majors. He was a part of the 2004 U.S. Ryder Cup team. He was on the bag for Michelle Wee in 2006 at the 84 Lumber Classic when she played out on the PGA Tour. And he was inducted into the Maine Golf Hall of Fame back in 2010, retired it back in 2016. He's got his own company called uh, Golf Mastery, which helps you master the game from a strategic management point of view. Follow it online at golfmastery.net. And I'm very excited he's back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Andy, how are you, my friend? Hey, Chris, how you doing, my friend? Uh, doing good, doing good. Just uh, waiting for um, summer to arrive out here in the in the great Northwest. So it's a little bit tardy at the moment. <laughs> no doubt. Hey, I tell you, Andy, I mean, everything about this year, right? Everything about 2020 sucks. And one of the biggest things is, you know, you talk about summer. When we think about summer, we think baseball. You and I, big Red Sox fans. So uh, before we get into all the golf, I got to get your thoughts on the Red Sox. No, no Chris Sale, no David Price, no Porcello, no Mookie Betts. And now we get a 60-game season with no fans. What do you think? Uh, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I mean, that that right there, Chris, I mean, to, to think about it, it kind of blows my mind, it, you know, to think that, you know, two years ago I went to the World Series, you know, four and five and watched them beat the Dodgers. And then, and then to see all this, thing come full circle to where it is now i mean it's almost like i think i've you know i'm not saying i'm giving up but it's like i'm going to take a rest from it or whatever i don't know i mean it's like i saw it at the great at what i thought was you know at the greatest time and now to see this i mean i know life goes on or whatever and it, you know, we have bumps in the road and it, it'll be interesting to see just you know how the red sox coaching and they still got a lot of great players on the team even despite you know the ones you mentioned so it'll be interesting to see how they do without Mookie and these guys because it basically they're 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 having drawing a whole new face of the team. So I mean, sixty games—that's a crapshoot. Anything can happen. So who knows? Are you going to watch? Is you know the fact that there's no fans and kind of some of the excitement that goes along that the fans bring to the game. Are you still going to watch? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably it's just in my heart, been in my heart since I was a kid, you know, playing the game, my dad, you know, playing, you know, being drafted and all that kind of thing. I mean, it, it's always going to be probably a part of me. I, I don't know if I'll be honest with you, I'm as excited as I usually am, just like you talked about. Um, but, and, you know, the big thing out here is, is, you know, I get this, you know, the Mariners jammed down my throat. So, I mean, if I can get a Red Sox game, <laughs> and generally they're on ESPN, so at least I got ESPN, so I can still catch a few of the games because they usually try to find a way to get the the Sox on since they got a you know Red Sox nation everywhere as you know. Right. What do you think about the other sports, Andy? I mean, you know, we've seen the PGA Tour players starting to test positive. You know, if we think about baseball, we think about football. Do you think we have a season or do you think we're going to start seeing guys, you know, test, I mean, particularly in the NFL, right? I mean, those guys are sweating all over each other, laying on top of each other, you know, fit everywhere and the whole nine yards. Do you think we can actually get through a season? I mean, it's, it's hard for me. I mean, to see what I've seen so far, just with the golf, like you said, a no contact for getting tested 
several times, trying to live in a bubble, you know, the whole strategy of it all. I mean, my hat's off to the door. I mean, they've, they've, they've exhausted probably every way they can to try to make it work. And, you know, I think they knew going in that it wasn't going to be bulletproof. They were, you know, the numbers, are, you're going to have some, you know, people that, that are going to test positive or whatever. But as far as the contact sport, I mean, that's hard for me to believe that they could dodge that bullet. Um, I mean, it's, you know, you need to build up your immune system, right? So staying in the house, that isn't, you know, the real answer either. I mean, you, we need to be out getting germs on us, building up a system too. I mean, I'm no doctor, but, you know, my, <laughs> I mean, the little bit that I did learn in school, you know, that it's still nice, you know, you still want to get out and try to live life and, and do what they're trying to do, and you know, you know, and, and all the business end of it and the NFL being the most popular, you know, sport that we have. So, I mean, I understand they're going to try to give it a swing, but it's going to be interesting to see just, you know, how, how far it goes and what is their going to, what is their cap going to be, you know, for, for before they may have to pull the plug or keep going and just, I mean, just there's so much of, of this, this pandemic and this COVID thing that nobody knows about and the experts in the world don't know about it. So I don't know how, you know, anybody in the NFL, despite all the information they're getting, I don't think they really know, to be honest with you, Chris. And Andy, you, you mentioned pulling the plug. And as we've seen a handful of players, caddies, test positive on the PGA Tour. If we, if we were to get a little further down the line and, and some, some one of the big players, like a, a Rory or if, a tiger, if Tiger comes out, obviously we know he's going to play in, in the majors. But, you know, one of the big name players was to get sick and test positive. Do you think the tour just keeps on going or do you think they have to circle the wagons and think about pulling the plug? I mean, that, I mean, that's, that's a tough call. I mean, I think it falls, you know, obviously in, in the numbers of it would, I mean, I think I read the other day that, you know, 2000 some odd tests that they've performed within, you know, the caddies players, et cetera. And you've got seven or eight so far that have tested what they say positive And then, it may look like that Cameron champ. I mean, it may look like his might've been a, you know, what do they call it? A false, ne- uh, false negative, false positive. Or whatever. A, a false positive. Yeah. So you know, yeah, obviously he wished he was negative and he could have kept playing. But I mean, with that, I mean, obviously Tiger's a big draw, Kepka, all these guys, you know, that, that had to be a shock. I mean, but really in the scheme of things, if you look at Hartford, yeah, you missed Brooke, Brooke Kepka playing, but guess what? I mean, it didn't affect the fans because no fans could come. So that part of it's kind of odd because, you know, the gate and all the draw and all that kind of thing, the bottom line is everybody's still forced to watch it on TV. So with that, I mean, I, I don't really know the answer to that, Chris. I mean, I've thought about that or whatever. I mean, I, I, I don't know what their number would be, nor do I know what any of the sports would be, but it's got to be you know, lead to a lot of sleepless nights for these commissioners trying to figure it out. And Andy, if you were out there as a tour caddy right now, would you be nervous? Would you want, would you want to be out there and feel like, yeah, no, no problem. I'll carry the bag for you, Kenny, or whoever, you know, might be asking for, you know, for a caddy and, and, and just go along as normal, or would you have some reservations? I mean, I mean, I would be aware of it and I would try to be smart to the coaching and everything that they've set up because they've tried to make it as possible, you know, as, as good as possible um, with every, they've taken every measure to keep you safe. 
so with that, I mean, I, you know, I would honestly focus more on, on my diet and keeping my immune system up. And, you know, cause if you can do that, obviously that makes your chances, you know, a lot less of getting it. But I mean, the, the, the thing, you know, you know, wiping the pins and doing all that kind of thing and wearing masks. I mean, they, they still don't know. I mean, I'll be honest with you. That would be hard to caddy in a mask. I mean, you know, I've tried, tried it around here when we'd had to go out and, you know, and that's without really exerting yourself and getting your heart rate up. I know some masks are better than others from what I've heard, but that, that's got to be challenging. I mean, I've seen, I saw, saw a few of the caddies wearing the mask and seen most of them not wearing because they think that obviously outside that your chances are less, but I mean, if, if I had a regular guy right now, I mean, I'd be right out there battling and right out there next with him and next to him and trying to do everything that the tour is trying to implement. I mean, would there be a little bit of, you know, doubt? I think it wouldn't be normal as a human being if you didn't have a little doubt. And do you want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the other things going on around the PGA Tour? And, and I'm sure you've seen Bryson DeChambeau, you know, all pumped up now, hammering drives about 400 yards on occasion. You know, it looks like he's going for broke, swinging for the downs on, you know, on every drive. Curious to get your thoughts on that. Is that, is that the way a player is going to have to be, you know, now to, in order to be successful? Or is that just a really good way to tear up your back and have a short career? <laughs> well, Chris, honestly, I mean, since probably the mid, I'm going to say since they busted out these bigger drivers, which would have been in the low, I don't know, early 2000s, and then the golf balls improved. If you start looking at the stats, basically that's what it's, you know, the guys that are doing really well are the guys that have been hitting it as far as they can, whether it's in the rough or not, and then, and then getting it on the green being closer has been better. So with that, I mean, Bryson, he wasn't too bad, you know, before he started this program. I think they said he was averaging 299, and now he's up to 321 in average. And obviously, he's pumping it. He's trying to get his, you know, his speed up to 200 and you know miles an hour, which is incredible. But I mean, it's interesting to see him do that, and then turn around and see Gary Woodland shed 25 pounds. And he, you know, he just won the U.S. Open. So, right. I mean, because why did he do it? Because obviously, you're probably ready. He goes. You know, we're going to play a lot of tournaments and I want to be fit and I want to be lighter. And I want to, you know, I want to be in better shape and, and do that kind of thing. So it's kind of funny that he's doing the exact opposite sort of, of what I know Bryson's doing, adding weight and putting on muscle and, and, and Woody and Woody's taking it off, but I know he's still working out and still keeping fit. But I mean, if you look, pounding it out there and getting it out there and having a wedge game and putting, that's kind of what it's been for the last 15 years on tour. It's really taken advantage away from the accurate guys and, and the guys that are a little shorter. And then when you get on courses, most recently you go to a Hilton head or you go to some, you know, there was some somewhere else they played before the pandemic scores weren't that, that the scores weren't that low because it was dog legs and they brought the rough in and this and that. So, a lot of it to me is going to be controlled by course setup and that's going to be determined yeah. by each tournament. It, it appears. So it just depends yeah, on where you go. The, I mean, To your point, Andy, is that the thing that, that has to change? I mean, like, you know, people have talked about, well, you know, we need to roll the ball back. Well, you know, we need to change the equipment, but I, I, I just, I believe that the toothpaste is out of the tube. There's, there's no way it's going back in. 
is that what's got to change? Do we got to go to the the superintendents at these courses and the designers and start to grow up the roof, narrow the fairways, you know, put some hazards, you know, around the 310, 320, you know, mark out there to really make these guys have to think about whether they're willing to take that risk with the bomb, you know, bombing the driver. I mean, I think I think so, and I think some of them have attempted to do that. It seems like you go to a course and they go, well, you know, they, you know, they added this bunker and they tried to, you know, they curved the fairway a certain way, et cetera. But I mean, I think that's all going to be determined by each tournament. So I mean, I don't think you want it every week. You know, I think you want weeks where they want you to shoot 20 under, and then they, you know, they want weeks where they want you to be more crafty, and you know, and 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 shoot nine under and win. And and that's all going to be dependent on the golf course. So, I mean, that'll, that'll be interesting to see how it goes forward. I'm like you. I don't think they can roll. How can you roll the ball in the club back with all the dollars that's invested in golf? And then you want to sit there and, and turn around and go the other way. And, I mean, I think the golf industry in the hard goods is struggle, struggling hard enough. I mean, I don't think that would be, you know, the, the move that they would make. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, that's just my guess. But, yeah, I, I think it's going to be more about that. I mean, I mean, because if you look at some of these scores at these different venues, trees versus no trees, water, you know, versus, you know, not having much water or the rough only at three inches versus the rough at even at Colonial. Look at Colonial. I was looking at, you know, the first week out, you know, and I was reminiscing about, you know, the uh, 15 years ago when I was fortunate enough to caddy for Kenny there. Kenny shot back then. He shot 261, which was 19 under par. And that was back when the rough was pretty high, it was pretty hot out, you know, that kind of thing or whatever. And the course, honestly, Colonial over the years, there's not much they can do with it. They've tweaked it a little bit, but if you've ever been there in person, the, the lot, the land in the area, there, there's not much you can do to lengthen it or do much, you know, they just don't have those kind of options. Now they have on the holes, they have stretched out the holes that they can, but for the most part, Colonial's been rock solid through all of this ball driver, persimmon, bolado, whatever, I mean, you start looking at the scores, I mean, what was it this year? It was less than 19 under, I'm pretty sure. Wasn't it like 14? It was 12. I can't remember what the score was, but it wasn't like what people thought it would be. And, you know, and the rough was not even up this year there. So it, it, yeah. it will be interesting to see moving forward when they start hitting, you know, something. It'll be interesting to see, like, they're having back-to-back up there at Mirrorfield, and they said they're going to set the course up differently back-to-back week. So that's interesting to me. I'll be interested to see how they can do that in a back-to-back week. But, yeah, I mean, I think course setup is going to be key and, you know, how much water they put on the course. You know, that, that dictates, you know, whether the scores are high or low and how much rain you get, you know, all the stuff that you've been watching and we've been watching over the years, that all rolls into it too. Andy, just a couple more before I let you go. And one of the things that um, has been interesting to learn over the years about uh, the relationship between Phil Mickelson and Bones is uh, that uh, Phil used to allow, allow Bones one veto a year on, you know, a crazy shot that Phil was, you know, thinking about, you know, attempting. I was curious, is that, is that odd? Do you, do you know, for the guys that you got to as a caddy for, did they allow you to, you know, hey, man, no, no, let's not try that. Well, so I can just say, I mean, for me, it was, I never had that option, but my pros were like all in 
every time we played. They didn't put any limits on anything. So, so I mean, Bones and Phil, that's a unique pair that will go down in history as one of the greatest. So, I mean, that when I heard that story, I mean, or I heard that from Bones, and he mentioned that because I hadn't heard it, and then someone mentioned it, and I went up and asked him. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I get one a year. I said, man, that, that's got to be tough. <laughs> you know, what, what will Phil do next? There's no, no lack of excitement with Phil Mickelson in his game. I mean, the guy's short game is unbelievable, and he's not, you know, he's not scared. He'll, 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 he'll try anything from anywhere. So, I mean, I'm not going to say that all his choices are, you know, that he has made. I mean, I'm sure he'll agree with you that, you know, that he may not have made the best ones here or there, but you know what? Got got to love his, you know, the fact that he's confident in himself and doing that. But you know, when he when he wants to do it, and 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 you think about it, yeah, you know, he got a lot of input from Bones over the years. You know, and there were many times when Bones talked him out of him too. You, you hear about those too, and you know, resulted in good in, in good results. But no, I was fortunate enough. My players, when they asked, I gave them you know what my opinion was and what I thought might be the you know the best option and. That's the way I kind of uh, addressed it. Andy, before I let you go, remind our listeners about your company, Golf Mastery, because it's fantastic, you know, and, and as I think about it on a personal level, I know my son is getting back into into the game a little bit more than uh, than he has in the last several years, kind of got away from it for a while. And, you know, he wants to see how far he can go now. And you help people with the mental game, strategizing around the golf course, course management. Talk about all the things that you do. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a unique opportunity, you know, for folks. I mean, basically to, you know, to have a chance to really just interact with, with you know, with me and like, you know, where I've been and what I've seen in 25 years of, of walking along, you know, the best and the greatest golfers in the world and observing, you know, how they, you know, how they prepared for a tournament and how they handled, you know, ups and downs on the golf course. I mean, I saw, I was fortunate enough to see all that stuff live from, from the, you know, from the greatest in a pretty good span of time, you know, with, you know, Nick Faldo and Greg Norman and, and even, even, you know, obviously Tiger and Phil and Rory and, you know, just all these guys, I was fortunate enough to be not just not so much to caddy for them all, but be able to be paired with them and to be out and see what do they do? When when they face, you know, you know, when they face the difficulties that they're 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 not wanting to take on or whatever, when you know when the adversity hits them, how are they doing it? And to share the you know that wisdom, I think it can really help young golfers, you know, really advance. And I think it can take them, you know, my I think my wisdom and knowledge can help take them maybe to the next level or maybe inspire them to get to the next level. I mean, I'm not saying it will. Um, because as you know, golf, golf isn't an easy game, and the percentage of folks that that want to try to be on the PGA Tour is very small, and it's hard to do. There's so many great players that that aren't able to get out there, and it's a head scratcher. But it's just that hard. But yeah, I mean, the strategy and the mental approach, and you know, and, and tips on green reading and and how to prepare a course before you play in a tournament. You know, I'm I'm just I'm open to 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 be able to talk to people one on one. And, and be able to, I guess now I may need to get my Zoom skills up because <laughs> now, with, now with this social distancing thing, I mean, you're lucky if you can get within six feet. I mean, honestly, golf's been slow out here just getting going. I mean, a month ago, they, were, they just opened the ranges and they do finally have the golf courses open, but with limited, I'm sure the same in your area, same kind of rules with the, the cup right. and the 
know, all that kind of stuff. So now it's, I mean, kind of now I have to maybe have to readjust on the run or whatever. It's not, you know, so personal. You know, it's not, I mean, you want to be personal, but you got to kind of, right now you got to kind of roll with what's going on. But I mean, to be able to even caddy, caddy for some, you know, or go out and, and caddy for a young golfer or whatever, I think it'd be a unique thing for them to get some feedback and perspective. And that's what I'm trying to offer. So, Andy, let our listeners know how they can follow you, whether it's on social media or it's on your website. So, on Twitter, I'm, a, I'm at, at Aleno Roman numeral two, and then Instagram is A-G-L-A-N-O number two, and um, and then, of course, it's it's www.golfmastery.net, and um, I'm available and can be contacted anytime at, at any of those places. And, and I just want to give a shout out to um, you, Chris, also for your weekly shout out on Twitter for everybody. I think that's awesome and really appreciate it. And uh, really, love, obviously, I really love Next on the Tee, but for you to take the time to do that and, and to, and honestly, the challenges that you have to carry on here with not a lot of live sports, I mean, you've got your other deal you do, and I think it's fantastic. And just want to give props to you. And, Really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate that very much, Andy. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. I hope uh, we get the privilege of having you on again real soon, Andy. Always a privilege to get to spend some time with you, my friend. Well, thank you very much, Chris. And and, and again, always blessed and thank you. Thank you for always inviting me to to, to chew the fat a little bit and catch up. So stay, stay safe and well, and we'll talk again soon. You do the same. Thank you, Andy. Take care. All the best to you and your family. You too. That is the great Andy Lano. And again, A Lano II on, on Twitter, A G Lano2 on uh, on Instagram. And golfmastery.net is his website. Go check him out. Andy is a fantastic guy and uh, he can do a lot to help you, you know, strategize and get a lot more out of your game. All right, before I get to my next guest, Kip Henley, I want to welcome a new sponsor to the show, Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing fin cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop Community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts, the resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen Championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, 
non-resident memberships and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, now joining me here on Next on the T is Paul Brandlund. Paul is the Eastern Sales Manager for Sun Mountain Sports, who makes some of the best golf bags and pull carts on the market. Sun Mountain's owner Rick Reimers also owns Finn Scooters, which are a very cool new way for players to get around the course versus traditional golf carts. Prior to Sun Mountain, Paul spent several years at Daytrek as a sales manager for their golf bags, and prior to that was a store manager for Nevada Bobs. So he has an extensive background in the golf industry. Going back to Paul's college days, he played his college golf at Portland State back in the mid-80s. He went on to Concordia University and earned his business degree in business management and communications. And I'm very excited to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. All right. Now back with me here on Next on the Tee is uh, PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley. Let me remind you about Kip's background. He's from Chattanooga, Tennessee, played his college golf at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where he tied for 19th at the 1982 Marshall Invitational and tied for fourth at the Southern Conference Championship. He has been a PGA Class A professional since 1988. He's played out on the Hooters Tour, on the Corn Ferry Tour, what's now the Corn Ferry Tour, and out on the PGA Tour as well. He's won the uh, Tennessee State Open twice and has been named Tennessee Player of the Year four times. He won the Golf Channel's Big Break 2 back in 2004 in a final that went uh, 20 holes. He's been a caddy on tour for several players like Jason Bond, Garrett Willis, Stuart Sink, B.J. Singh, Austin Cook, Brian Gay, and Boo Weekly. Back in 2017, he was inducted into the Chattanooga Sports Hall of Fame. And I'm very honored. He is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Kip, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, good Lord, you know more about me than I know about me. How'd you get all that? <laughs> How did you find out I played in the Marshall Invitational? And I, I didn't know I finished that well, 19th. I'm proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> As you should be. How you doing, Kip? What's going on thing. with you? I'm, I'm doing great. Well, that brought back some memories. You know, when uh, we played in the Marshall Invitational, uh, Ohio State, and there was a lot of strong teams played in that thing. I can't believe I finished that high because I was terrible in college. <laughs> well, you couldn't have been that bad for finishing tied for fourth in the conference championship. That's pretty strong. Yeah, that's probably my best showing ever in college. I think uh, we were in there against East Tennessee State and Hulbert and a bunch of guys, but we weren't in the, and Faxon. I think Faxon might have even been in our – I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, that, that's about as good as I ever felt. I think I finished second in one other college tournament. No wins ever. My, I really had a, a very bad college career in golf. Well, and in the again. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kip, what, what, what's got you busy right now? What are you doing you know, with all this coronavirus and everything else? What, what, what are you, how are you spending your days? Well, uh, Thank goodness we finally got to go back out. I, I worked the last two weeks. I did a Hilton Head and then went to a Cromwell, but Stuart missed the cut in, up in uh, Connecticut. And so I, uh, I flew home Friday night. And I've been on for a couple of days. And I'm here this week, and then I head back out. I dr I'm driving up to uh, Stuart's in both the uh, Muirfield events. So uh, one week at home and start back on the road. 
You nervous at all about what's going on with the COVID-19 now, particularly that we're seeing players test positive, a couple of caddies, you know, we're, we're iffy. So any reservations? Zero for me, but I just, I'm just, you know, they're keeping us safe as they possibly can. They're really testing us out the wazoo up there and we're having to wear masks inside and things like that. And, uh, I mean, I am. I have z really, truly. I have zero reservations about it anyway. And I just don't get sick. I don't catch colds. I don't catch flus. I just don't. So that I mean, I don't want to give it to someone else if I contract it or if I'm a carrier. That would concern me. But as far as me getting it, something else is going to kill Kipper. There ain't going to be no flu bug getting me. <laughs> knock on, knock on linoleum. Hey, <laughs> Kip. You know, you guys. Well, at least from what I'm reading, they're trying to keep you guys, as you mentioned, as safe as possible. Sort of life in a bubble uh, on some levels. You know, guys, you know, charter planes and, you know, everyone's sort of staying together and that sort of thing. Do you feel it? Do you feel that they're they're really going above and beyond to keep you guys as safe as possible? They're super. I can't imagine what kind of money the PGA Tour is spending doing this stuff that they're doing. These two charter jets a week and all the testing. Think of the testing. I mean, they're, I mean, they're having like real health people come in, like doctors and stuff, and testing us. And they have all these staging centers where you go here and you get a swab up your nose, then you go over there, and everything's wrapped in plastic. And it's, they hand you your book, it's wrapped in plastic. And, uh, I mean, when we go inside to eat, you have to have a mask when you walk in there. And, like, you grab your food and you sit down, and there's, like, one one or two guys at a ta- big giant table here and one or two over there, and people are just staying apart. And I mean, it, this COVID really has put the fear in a lot of guys. And you can see it in the way a lot, half the caddies, and you know, maybe a little bit less than half, you can see they're really super conscientious of what they're doing. You know, there's a handful of guys that are pretty lax about it, but they don't have any choice. If they get caught being super lax about it, they'll be asked to leave. The tour is, they ain't messing around, man. They're, they're spending some serious jack on this. I can't, I'd really love to know what the tour is spending to keep us try and keep us healthy you know but now i heard another player tested for it but i'm just thankful yeah. that it ain't like i'm just thankful it ain't like 10 of the caddies do it and like no players and then we infect the players so so far more players are getting infected than the caddies so uh, that makes me feel a little better i was afraid there everybody's like, oh, the caddies getting everybody sick you know how they did they caddies on the uh nation i mean on the corn ferry that got sick it first first i heard of any of us you know, no, I hadn't heard of any tour players. I hadn't heard of any caddies on the PJ Tour and haven't heard of any Corn Ferry players. And then it came out the two caddies got tested and, and tested positive. And they said they were in a bar, you know, it was a crowded bar, and everybody's really throwing rocks at them and stuff. And I thought, God, that makes us look like idiots. But now then, it seems like there's way more players that tested positive than the caddies. And so that's a long answer to your yeah. question. But, yeah, it's spent a lot of money. <laughs> So, Kip, do you think the tour is really committed to, regardless of what happens, we're going to finish out this season, we're going to get all the way through to the Masters in November, or could there come a situation if, you know, God forbid, you know, one of the big players like a Rory or a Tiger, or, you know, one of those guys ends up, you know, getting really sick, could they pull the plug on the rest of the season? I can't imagine, Chris, I can't imagine, you know, when they were doing, I mean, they've had, they've, Hosted like three thousand tests or something. So I mean, it would be uh, crazy to think that you're not going to have somebody 
come positive in that, you know. But as long as someone doesn't die or like a rash of like 15 or 10 percent of the players start to get sick, then there will be a shutdown. But as long as there's just one or two guys a week, and really the worst I've heard yet is a runny nose. One of them had a runny nose. No one feels bad. No one's being put in the hospital. I think it, I think the tour is to be commended for doing what they're doing, trying to put some normalcy back in sports. And, and people, you know, the real naysayers, you know, and the real haters out there and the, and the fear mongers are, are going to say, you know, that it is sports worth it and it's not worth it. And you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. But uh, any sensible human being would realize that sports and major sports is a part of our lives. And it's a part of our lives, you know. The way we do things on the weekends and the things we get out and do, and I, I commend the tour to no end. And Jay Monahan, what he's doing is just, I think it's remarkable. And I pray they don't catch. So you know, I don't. Obviously, if 15 percent of the players start to get sick, then they'll be, they'll be, their hands are tied. They'll be shutting it down. But as long as there's a, a pop, a, a, a spot here, a spot there, I think the tourists be commended for what they're doing, Mike. Kip, I want to switch gears and I want to, I want to talk about some other stuff. And um, when I was looking back at uh, at your career, you go back to 97 during the Club Pro Championship. You were in sixth place but got hospitalized. Speaking of hospitalization, you got hospitalized for severe dehydration. And the, the top 25 for that tournament were going to earn a spot in the PGA Championship at Wingfoot. That's sort of the one that got away. Oh my gosh, Chris, you are, you got some kind of dang research department up there, bud. Yeah, that's amazing <laughs> news about that. Uh, you know, when I was, and back in those days, I wasn't the old fat, out of shape caddy that I am with a big bell. I was pretty healthy, and I played in the National Club Pro that year at Pioneers, and it, and I think it was like 108 degrees almost every single round that year. And <laughs> I was so healthy. In those days, you know, I always said a hungry shark hunts better. So I wouldn't eat or anything during my rounds. And if I ever ate, it would be like a Diet Coke and a Snicker bar at the turn. I was the I was the worst. That was way before nutrition became a big deal, too, you know. At least it was for me. And I didn't – no players were – it was it was more hot dogs and hamburgers and, and uh, you know, like a, a Gatorade is like really going to bat for nutrition back in those days. But I – uh. I drank a Diet Coke at the turn, and uh, I drank a Diet Coke before I teed off and a Diet Coke at the turn that day in 108 degree. And never, I'd never even thought about dehydration in my career. And if I saw water, I might get a sipper here and there, but I was just in such good shape. I was playing a lot of basketball, but, boy, something hit me that day, and, I mean, it was a viable lesson for me. And I went down, had to go to the hospital, and, uh, God, it was a scary time, but, that's amazing you knew about that. That is a huge hole in my my golf resume, never making it to the PGA Championship. And if all I had to do was take vertical that weekend and I was going to make it, that was – I mean, that still sticks in my crawl to this day. Chris, it's amazing you knew that story. <laughs> um, I want to talk about some of your time. Going, let's go back to college because, uh, you know, you caddied at the Masters a handful of times, but I read that you know, you guys used to drive down there you know, back in the days when you could still walk up to the ticket counter and buy a ticket for the practice rounds. You know, $12, $15. You used to go and, and be a part of it back then. Talk about your early memories of what it was like being at Augusta National. You know, I was growing up as a kid, I'd always watch it. And 
I found out when we were in the 11th grade, me and my good buddy found out we could just drive down there and get tickets, you know. We could walk right up to the practice round. You couldn't get tournament tickets. I think there might have even been a waiting list in those days. I'm not positive about that. But we found out you could go to practice rounds, and we found out it's $12.50. So we skipped school and went down there, paid the twelve fifty, and and parked and had enough money left over to eat some barbecue sandwiches and just had an amazing day down there, me and my buddy, just in awe. And seeing Arnold Palmer when he wasn't too far removed from his heyday, and he was just like a god to me in those days. Dress, I can remember what he was wearing that day in 1970. I remember he had on these gray golf slacks and a pink golf shirt, and that and it had silver hair, and he, I mean, it was just like really bumping into Jesus for me. It was really a, a moving experience. And so we decided our senior year, hey, we're doing that again. We're going to skip school. We'll go down to Wednesday and maybe catch the par three. We find out we can. So we drive down there, and we got just enough money to get our tickets and have a couple of barbecue sandwiches and get back with gas money. We were broke. And we get down there, and the, and the tickets weren't twelve fifty like they were on the Tuesday. They were 15 on the par three day, and that that really cut into our budget. We had to go light on barbecue sandwiches <laughs> that day. But again, I fell in love with that place, man. I mean, I knew every inch of that. We would go down and walk it. We would just walk it over and over and over. So, and when I finally got to go caddy for Brian Gay and that thing, I said, dude, I know this thing plays like the back of my hand. I've never, you know, I've never been in on the greens, but. I know every inch of this place, and I'd been there so many times. And after I got my class A as a club pro, we'd go down to tournament rounds and stuff. So it was a—it's really a, 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 a religious experience for me. Augusta is fabulous. And to that end, Kip, and walking it as as a kid and and seeing it is one thing. Lugging a fifty-pound bag and a white jumpsuit up and down those hills, up and down five and eight and 17 and 18. That's a whole different thing. What's that like? Man, it is, it's way tougher than people think. The first thing you'll notice about Augusta, if you've never seen it, it's up on TV, and you finally get to see it in person, the first thing that blows your mind is the change in elevation. It's so much up and down. And, and when you're walking those fairways, like you're saying, carrying that, that bag, uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story about, you know, when I went to work for VJ for those five events, my first tournament was Augusta National. So we hang out a little bit, Monday through whatever it was, the practice rounds, you know, and he already, by this time, by Wednesday, he knows my diet is pretty much just hamburgers and French fries and cold beer and stuff after the rounds and saying, he just knows I eat terrible. He can see my body and know it, but he, he finds out my diet. So the first round, he hits it in that bunker on number eight, you know, the fairway bunker, the cross bunker. And so he gets stuck in there and he blasts out and he don't even, you know, he barely gets to the top of the hill. So now I've got to rake that bunker. The, whoever I'm playing with, can't remember who we were paired with, but they're on the other side of the fairway. They can't help me. So I got to get in that and rake that bunker perfectly, you know. And uh, I rake the bunker out and then I hop back out, toss the rake side, pick that bag up. Now I look up that, it looks like Mount Everest in front of me, getting up to that second <laughs> shot on eight. So I kind of start doing my little fat man jog up the hill there, holding that bag on my shoulder. I get to the top, man, I am sucking some bad air. I am absolutely, VJ looks at me, he smiles, he doesn't smile much. He looks at me and he goes, you want another little cheeseburger there, buddy? <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> He heard me sucking air like crazy. He was poking fun of my fat behind getting up there. But, uh, <laughs> yes, the, the hills of Augusta are, and, you know, and then 18 is way more 
uphill than you think. You tee off and then you go down the bottom of the hill that you can't see on television, and then you got to go all the way back up below that. But usually, you know, really truly, Chris, when you're there during the tournament, you're absolutely walking on air, and you can it's it's, it's a tough walk, but it's way easier because of where you. If that were Reno or something like that, and first place was five hundred thousand and it wasn't. 15,000 fans, it would be really a tough walk, but it's Augusta, man. You're walking on air there. Kip, there are a couple of funny things that I've seen people attribute to you so, or that I've read that were quotes from you, and I wanted to see if it's real. One of the things I read, it's you said, I'm, ha- I'm a happy-go-lucky guy on the course, and I like to have fun, but I'm determined to win my big break. This might sound terrible, but I've but I've given a lot to this game and it owes me, and I think a lot of us feel that way. Have you gotten what the game owes you? Oh my goodness, I've said that a million times, man. Uh, as I'm starting to get older, you know, and I'm looking back and I realize pretty much everything that uh, that I can touch, you know, besides my family, has came to me, and all my memories come to me through the game of golf, but. I mean, I look at my career as a failure, you know, not ever get the tour because that was my one mission in life. I was going to be a tour player, you know. I wasn't I wasn't a good college player, but I knew the whole time I was in college I didn't need to pass. I didn't need to get a degree because I knew I'd win me a couple of green jackets someday. It was nothing but a complete mission for me to get that done. So I look at my golf career, even though I've had, you know, a, a crap ton of trophies and stuff, I look at it as pretty much a failure. But Really? I haven't said that. Yes, I do. And people laugh at me for that. Say, Kip, are you kidding? All the state opens and everything you've done and you've won in the big break and all that. And I said, right. great, but I had one mission in life and I failed at it. You know, and I tried with both hands for 100 years. I never, I just wasn't smart enough to give up. And I had a wife who supported me and wouldn't, she supported my mission the whole time. I can't point fingers at anyone but myself. So, I mean, it's really, I mean, but, it's a serious question, but the golf doesn't owe me anything anymore. You know, I failed at it, in my opinion, but uh, the game is such a beautiful game, and and it doesn't owe me. I shouldn't say that anymore. I should quit saying that. I should just say uh, my career as a golfer is kind of a, a, a mostly a failure the way I look at it. Isn't that sad? I also, sad, isn't it? it? It is a sad statement because you have one about and the big break, too. You go out there and and you pulled that off, I and mean, you had to go two extra holes to win it in the final, but that's a heck of a thing. I mean, think about it. How many people can say that they've won as often as you have won? I mean, not very. I mean, just the guys on television, you know, and maybe a few guys around the state, uh, your state players that have had any kind of career that can match mine. I'm, I mean, I'm proud of, I'm proud of what I've accomplished in some ways, you know, but that one thing, that one golden ring that I never could get my hand around, man, that just leaves. But the big break, too, man, that was an absolute game changer for me and having an opportunity, and that lit the fire back under me again. You know, I wasn't far from giving up start caddying, and then when that big break rolled around and I won it, boy, that turned it right back on again. And uh, I had uh, some money to go out and play. I paid off all my credit cards that I'd put us in debt trying to play for a living, and and I got to start fresh there, and, and I failed again. So, I mean, I look at that, uh, uh, even though it was the most incredible thing that ever happened in my golf career, for sure, winning the big break, too. 
uh, it, it gave me the chance to get back out there, and I failed it for the hundredth time, you know. So I don't know. It's it's a it's a, I need to see a psychic. Can I lay on your couch and you and you figure this out for me? I need I need Absolutely. a psychologist. But. Absolutely, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> Kip, I I read a quote that says you're a lot taller than you look. Is that, yeah. Is that, are you physically deceiving? No, listen, dude. I'm five. I'm, I'm some my that people say I'm five nine. I haven't I haven't done my height in there. I used to say I was five seven and a half. That's how tall I thought I was. But I've uh I've been. I think I'm five nine now. But I used to say I used to cut myself short because I was proud that I could dunk a volleyball. You know, being a short white guy that was able. I played a lot of basketball in my days, and I was always proud of that so I always lowballed my height a little bit you know and I already had a wife so I didn't have to lie about how tall I was to chick so I, didn't, I wasn't trying to get girls so I, li- I lied low instead of high on that just for my jumping ability so I think I may be 5'9 but I'm no bigger in person than I- I'm short and as fat as, on- as I look on television that's what I look like in humans <laughs> and I read someone once asked you what your favorite foreign country to caddy in is, and you said Alabama. Still the case? <laughs> Still the case, yeah. Uh, man, I don't care. I, you're amazed at the stuff you come up with. Well, you're doing some serious research, little buddy. Uh, yeah, I did <laughs> say that. I, I, I'm a local caddy. I do not like to get out. I mean, if I go to Canada, that stinks for me, you know, having to cross the border and get up there and the food's awful and everything, even though I got a lot of Canadian friends, but uh, like going to England and catting over there, you would think that'd be the greatest thing in the whole wide world, but I'd rather have needles jabbed in my eyes. I don't like doing it. Now, once once you're there in your terrible hotel and you're eating terrible food, and once you you get on the first tee of like St. Andrews, then it's, a, it's different. You're really in, you know, you know you're doing something special and you're getting to be a part of something really special. But getting there and staying in the hotels and the food, just I don't like it worth crap. And the in the long airport lines and the and doing to uh, whatever customs that all stinks. I hate that part. I'm a local cat. Kip, just a couple more before I let you go. And and I've heard you know some of your peers talk about how players don't want caddies to implement or uh, implant any negative thoughts. Like you know, hey, don't hit it left. Hey, watch out for the water on the right. They only sort of want positive thoughts kind of implanted before oh. before they hit a shot. Um, talk about your experience with, with guys, you know, what do they want you to do or what do they not want you to say? Well, exactly what you said, but, you know, having played at a a fairly high level, I was already aware of all that. And and really, Chris, what we do is caddies reading greens and getting yardages and all that stuff. It, 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 it pales in comparison to what our most important job is. And that's to kind of be, uh, uh, a, a psychologist. In a, in a sounding board for our guys and 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 help them keep their confidence up and when things go rough and you you're telling them the sensible things and uh that's the most important thing the best caddies on the PJ tour do know what the guys think and know see see down the road know and and you can do this man you can be out there on tour and as a caddy you're not having to control your emotions very much at all you know you're just getting to observe and and if you and if you're really on top of your game out there you can see things unfolding. You can hear the statements coming from like rookies and and other guys that have been up down a, a little bit. And you can see, I'm telling you, 
you can you can a, a couple of caddies can go. Here's what this guy's about to do right here, Chad. And and here's what he's going to do when we get over to 16. This ball's going over here. You watch. I mean, you can just see it. You can predict the future by listening to these guys' attitudes and stuff. And and it's pretty amazing what <laughs> if you really pay attention and you've been around the game, you can see the future as a caddy. It's a pretty amazing. So most of us really uh, were pretty good at. Uh, psychology. I've always said, Chris, I always said if you could somehow put the interactions with the caddies and the players into a textbook, it would be a, a master class psychology class at the hardest university in the world. It, it is absolute, it's mental warfare what we go through out there with the, the players and the caddies and how how you're, you know, what to say at the right time. I lay awake at night in the hotel room and thinking about how can I get my guy's head tomorrow and make him a more confident, cocky golfer. You know, that's that's what we do. So, uh, again, that's a long answer to your short question, but that's what the cat, the most important caddies, the best caddies are sports guys in their brain. Kip, I I looked on your on your Twitter page and I could see you're still disappointed. Pete Rose isn't in the Hall of Fame. Why? That's crazy. I mean, the guy, I mean, obviously you can't go and do what he did, but it's been long enough. He's paid the price. You know, the guy's, uh, he's the he's all-time hit leader, right? Number one. Right. Didn't he? How do you yes. not have that guy in your Hall of Fame? And, and Bart, Bart Giamani said at one point, as long as he's alive, he'll never be in the Hall of Fame. Well, Bart's dead now. Paid his, I just think he's deserving of it. You know, I know he bet on the game. And he and apparently he just bet to uh, his team to win. He didn't ever throw the he didn't ever throw a match or anything like that, which would be the ultimate sin. But I mean, obviously he did wrong, but I think he's paid the price and he's been a good ambassador for the game since that that you know since he's been out of it really and truly. He, he's a great interview and stuff, and boy, what's going through? He's a you know he's a, he's a real baseball nut and expert and. Uh, I just, you know, I wasn't even a huge fan of his, but I think what's right is right. He should be in there. Kip, one of our new sponsors here on the show is the Macklemore, which is a beautiful new course up there just outside of Chattanooga. And you tweeted not that long ago that the 18th hole there is the second most beautiful finishing hole in golf after the 18th at Pebble Beach. Talk about that course. Yeah, now I've never played it, but I went and visited. Me and the wife were just driving around for a Sunday afternoon just to, to get out, and uh, I th- we got up on Lookout Mountain. I'd love to go up and look at the history of that, you know, both sides of the war and things like that. The Civil War was big here. And so we started kind of going further into the mountain. If you go far enough, you eventually get back there to where the Macklemore is. It's the other side of the, the uh, Lookout Mountain. So uh, I I decided, you know, my, my one of my oldest – when I was the head pro in Fairfield Glade, Crossville, Tennessee, one of the assistant pros came through there and went on and got his other job up. He's the head pro there now, Doug Amore. So he's a good friend. And uh, so I just went up to visit him. He wasn't there that day. And I just popped in without it. And they gave me a cart and let me, they were nice to me and let me look around. And we immediately rode down to the 18th and I couldn't wait to see it. And boy, it did not disappoint. It's beautiful, man. What a golf course, but really, truly, uh, you really got to see that. To, to I tried to uh, capture it on my phone and let you know the beauty of the place, but it don't do it justice. It, it, it's the beauty of sitting there looking off the side of that mountain. And I'm telling you, there's there's two or three spots on that thing. If you take one step off, it's you're dead. You're a, you're plummeting 
hundreds of feet down to the the rock below. So it's not, you know, it's not uh, something you'd be. You, it'll take your breath away when you get up near the edge. I mean, you're not going to run the golf cart off or anything unless you're just being a fool and you know where you're going. But it is so incredible to see looking off down. And I don't know if that's the Sequatchie Valley below or what it is, but it is some kind of beautiful. And they say it's a, a, a unbelievable. I just rode a couple of holes on the back and we took off. But I'm dying to get up there and play it, and especially since a lot of my friends have so much to do with it. Kip, just one more before I let you go. When you were inducted into the Chattanooga Sports Hall of Fame, what's it like uh, being recognized like that in your hometown? You know, it's pretty special. You know, uh, like I said, I've I've tried so hard at the game for so long, and you know, and I've won. I just did most of my. I'm, I'm in there most because I did damage in the club pro ranks, and you know, in Tennessee golf because I was a club pro for so many years here, and that's where I that's where I got. You know, 90% of my trophies come from that spot, just beating the guys in Tennessee golf. But uh, I'm super proud of that. And the, more than anything, it was to to go in there behind my father. My father was a great athlete. He's in there for the softball. Men's fast pitch softball was a huge sport in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And they had some powerhouse teams and went to the world tournament a bunch. And so my father was already in there, and that made it even that much more special to be the second Henley in there. So. I am proud of that, and uh, I feel like, really, true. This is a terrible saying. If the people in Tennessee are listening, they'll they'll come at me for this. But uh, I feel like there's as hard as it is to win golf tournaments now, and in, in in state events, you know, there's so many great players. You know, like Tiger's records on tour are going to be hard to beat. Man, somebody special is going to really come along to win that off. And it's the same in Tennessee golf. There's, so many good players now it's getting harder and harder to win events and you know my career it doesn't stand out as 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 big in tennessee golf as many of the others that are in the hall of fame but i amassed a, a pretty good career it's gonna be hard for a lot of guys to get to because there's so many guys winning events now it's just not one or two so i kind of feel like they're gonna play heck keeping me out of that tennessee hall of fame i hope that would be a really <laughs> big question if that happens it probably won't happen like i said because my career isn't that great but it's getting harder and harder for these boys to catch me, I promise you. <laughs> That's awesome. Kip, let our <laughs> listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on social media? I'm just, I'm pretty much, uh, Twitter's my game, man. I'm just Kip Henley on Twitter, and and uh, I've, I've been I've been sucked into the political uh, thing, things a little bit. You know, I've always been, I consider myself a great American, and I support the president, so. I catch a lot of heat for supporting uh, Trump, you know, from people. And But I, when I supported Obama, the same as I supported Trump, I caught a lot of heat from the other side of the aisle. So I'm used to that, but I try not to get too caught up in the political scene. And I know my golf thing is what people have been there for my jokes and my wife and my beautiful family and the pictures and my, me sharing and the honesty that I have with, uh, with the game and stuff. And I try to push it right to the edge, you know, without – I'm, I'm proud of the fact that the PGA Tour has never asked me to take down one of my tweets. And everybody thinks I'm super controversial. Well, I've never done anything that the tour looked at and said, hey, that should come down. And, and I would never cross the bro code with like a player or a caddy. I would never rat somebody out for doing something rotten. Or, But I try to I try to be as honest and as uh, forthcoming as I can about the game of golf. And I, I think – I think I'm a pretty good follow on there. That's something I'm, I think I'm okay yes, you at. Are. But I'll pat stuff that. 
You are a tremendous follow. Kip, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. I'll do it, little buddy. And if I ever have any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research, man. You're the best. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you. Kip, stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Peace and love. See ya. See ya. That's a great Kip Henley. Folks, he is a tremendous follow on Twitter. At Kip Henley, can't get easier. He is so much fun. And like you said, he's honest. And, and you know, you put a spin on some things like, you know, being you know, your your favorite foreign country to, to go to is Alabama. And uh, it does it just doesn't get any better than that. So I highly encourage you to, to take, uh, to take a, a look at his Twitter page and give him a follow. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks go out to Michael Whalen, Andy Lano, and Kip Henley for joining me. Uh, please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what uh, the guest schedule looks like here. Uh, you can stream this show as a podcast over on podcast.co, and that's .co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm. We are all over the net. You have a favorite podcasting site? You're going to find us on it. Folks, I cannot thank you enough for continuing to make us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. The warm air, the sounds of baseball, it's got you thinking about hitting the road. And no matter where your adventures take you, Subaru of Gwinnett has a vehicle to get you there safely and in style. Like the 2024 Subaru Outback, sporting standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and up to 32 miles per gallon. Or the 2024 Subaru Forester, the SUV with a spacious and comfortable interior for everyone you want to bring along. Start your shopping online at SubaruofGwinnett.com, then come see us for a test drive on Satellite Boulevard in Duluth. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. A lifetime of hard work, children laughing in the kitchen, family photos on a restaurant wall, a legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC.